comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak of peace that says our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning neath their sorrows low. Speak ye to Jerusalem of the peace and which with them. Tell her that her sins I cover and her warfare now is over. Thank you. Good morning to you all. My name is Charles, and uh, I haven't said this in a while, so I feel the need to say this again. But if we haven't met, uh, I would love to meet you. So please come up after the service and say hi to me. Um, I would love to get a chance to just hear your name and uh, hopefully remember it and, uh, and get to know you just a little bit. Um, This season is the season of Advent, as we said several times this morning already, and as we've said several times over the past few weeks, and uh, as a way of trying to immerse ourselves into Advent, we've chosen four hymns to look at, over four of our favorite Advent hymns to look at over um, over the four weeks of Advent, and really examine the biblical teaching that informs the formation of those hymns. And uh, the challenge of doing that has been, over the past couple weeks, of just choosing one particular text to preach from based on the hymn. Because the truth is, with a lot of these hymns, they are informed by uh, biblical texts from a lot of different places. But that's not the case with this hymn. Uh, This hymn is lifted almost directly out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, and that's the text that we'll be looking at this morning. And uh, as we look at that, I I want you to see, you know, we've looked at Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, now we're in 40. I want you to see that the tone uh, that Israel takes with God's people changes a lot right here in this chapter, okay? So for several chapters now, Isaiah has been warning God's people uh, of sin that they've been perpetuating Over the course of a long period of time, the chapter right before this one is chapter 39, where Isaiah even predicts the fall of of Judah, of Jerusalem, to Babylon, which will happen a century later. Um, But now what we see is that as he goes forward, he shifts from prophecies of confrontation to prophecies of consolation, is what we see in this passage. And... uh, Uh, It's almost as if Isaiah leapt forward in time and began speaking to God's people who were in exile. And when he says these words, the first words that come out from Isaiah's mouth are words of comfort. Let's look together at Isaiah chapter 40. I'll read verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O Lord of glory, I pray that you would increase our affections for you, our longings for you, that you would attend to our hope in you during this time that we have together. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us in ways that we need to hear. And Father, I pray that you would go about the work of continuing to form us as your people as you promised to do. Help me to love these people well with the words that I say. I pray that they would honor you and your mission to the world and your love for each of these people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've said already several times uh, this morning, several times over the past couple of weeks, Advent is a season where we remember our waiting. And here's the thing about waiting. Uh, it's not fun, right? I mean, waiting is really hard for us. And we could talk all day about uh, how we design airports and waiting rooms and trying to attend to how hard waiting is. We can talk all day about coping mechanisms that we put in our life that, that help us deal with waiting. And waiting is hard. When I think about waiting, I think about my grandparents. Uh, this is a time for uh, a season where we're getting together with family and uh, we might see family that we don't get to see very much. And so kids that are in here, I want to just tell you, ask your grandparents for stories and then listen to them. My grandma and my grandpa have a story that could have its own movie. Uh, it started in 1944. And uh, if you know, 1944 was uh, a year of mobilization for, uh, for um, our participation in World War II. And so during that time, a lot of able-bodied men were uh, being deployed overseas to, to help with the war effort, and that was my grandpa. He was, um, was going to go overseas, and uh, he was stationed for a little bit of time uh, in, in, at a base in Green, Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, awaiting deployment. And it was there that he met my grandma at a USO dance, of all places. And you know how there are some couples who um, like to joke about who fell in love with who first? Um, with my grandfather, there was just no pretense about that at all. He said he met my grandmother, and his heart belonged to her immediately. That's the way he put it. It was really sweet. And he knew that he wanted her to be his wife. And, uh, and so their first date, times have changed a little bit, but their first date was he went with her and her family to church. Very sweet. And, uh, and shortly before he left... To go overseas, he scrounged up what money he had and bought a ring, and he proposed to her, and she said yes, and then he left. He left with no idea if or when he would come back home. And when I think about waiting, I think about my grandmother and just wonder what that time was like for her. I think that might have been painful. Maybe agonizing. There are times when waiting is just awful. And what we see here in this passage is Jesus or God speaking to a people whose waiting is really and truly awful. That they're in exile and they're waiting for God to rescue them. And it's really hard. And what we see here are really two voices. A first voice, which is verses 1 and, and verses 2. 
Uh, and I'm going to call that a voice that comforts. And then the second, the second voice you see, a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm going to say that's a voice that calls. And that's the way we're going to talk about it this morning, a voice that comforts and a voice, and a voice that calls. The first verse, voice we see in this passage really is a voice of comfort. That's not hard to discern. It says, comfort, comfort, ye my people. Now, why, why do these people need comforting? Well, is, Isaiah is really speaking to people who are in exile. People who are in exile would have read this. And uh, it's important to just understand why these people, why God's people went into exile at all. And it's a hard truth to look at, but it's a biblical truth to look at. Because if we pan out a little bit and look at the story of Israel, we will see that God has been speaking to the people through various prophets including Isaiah, Isaiah is one of them, that he's been speaking to them and he's been warning them about sins that have been persisting in their life. He has been warning them for a long period of time uh, about uh, their ways and uh, yet we see that God's people ignored their warnings for a long period of time. And their current suffering in exile, the Bible really makes no bones about this, their current suffering in exile is because of God's willingness to discipline them because of their continued sin. Now, I want, I want to just say a word about that because I think that can be hard for us, right? And the idea of, uh, of God's discipline and the idea of exile being a picture of God's discipline, I think that's really hard uh, for, for us to, to reconcile. And the Bible teaches us that when we're brought into the company of God's people, uh, that we're brought into his family. Uh, the words fatherhood, a perfect father, are used often. Uh, adoption language is used often to describe what God is doing when he brings his people into his covenant community. He takes us in damaged and scarred, and, uh, and he makes us his people. And listen, this adoption is sacred and it's permanent. He brings us in and makes us his. And uh, the like adoption and fatherhood are the operating images that the Bible gives us to understand our place in God's people. And part of God's loving kindness to us is his willingness to, to discipline us. Like he loves us too much to allow us to simply go the way of our sinful nature. And his discipline is a measure of his grace. That he's not, that it, and it tells us that he's not giving up on us. Now, I, I know that um, all of us have been children at one time. We probably might have had parents that disciplined us. And, and uh, some of us are parents, and, and we might kind of know what that's like. But uh, I still think we get that in concept. But I think for us, it can be, it, it can be hard for us to understand when uh, we start looking at the severity of this. Like when we start seeing exile. Uh, facing uh, suffering that, that goes on for a long time, that can be hard for us to understand. And, and I just want to say two points to that. One is simply that um, if, if, uh, if this is the severity of the discipline that's deserved because of continued and persistent sin after centuries of, of warning, after centuries of coming to us and informing us about our sin, then it has to at least give us an idea about just how bad sin it really is. Like, the sin in our hearts is terrible. And, and, it, and it also tells us that God operates with a divine perspective that we don't have. That God is God and we're not. That we're not, 
We know that, 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 he, that he looks at our sin, and Scripture tells us that it, that it grieves him. Psalm 78 says, The people rebelled against God in the wilderness, and it grieved him. Like a, like a parent who grieves over a wayward child. So does God feel the waywardness of his people. And listen, I can't think of anything that these people needed to hear more in those moments than what God says to the people through Isaiah in these passages. Think about what a child needs to hear when they're being disciplined. They need, they need to hear, uh, I still love you. They need to hear words of tenderness speaking to them, that words of commitment and words of love. And so they, and this is what they hear. They hear, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, comfort them. And then God says, you are my people. I still love you. You're still mine. I belong to you and you belong to me. And the, the, the truth of their identity as belonging to God is something that is inviolable. So he speaks to them comforting words of identity. He also speaks to them comforting words about their future. And they needed to hear this because of the, the lives that they were living at this time were, were difficult. And they need to hear words uh, like this. He says, there's going to come a time when your warfare, that could also be translated time of hard service, time of duress, when that, all that is over, when that ends. He's saying that sin and exile and discipline, there's going to come a time when all that ends. But your future is secure. So he offers them comforting words about their future. And how does that happen? Because of the comforting words that he gives them that, there's, that their sins will be forgiven. He says, they will be pardoned of their iniquity. That she will receive double from the Lord's hand. That, that simply means that Israel will receive a double pardon of grace. The grace that I have for you is enough to cover your sins twice over, is what we see in this passage. Those are words of comfort that God is bringing to his people. What is he telling them? He's telling them that sin, that darkness, that discipline, that our hardness of heart, that our stubbornness, that our estranged relationship with God, it can feel like sometimes, all of that is temporary. He's saying there are things about you, your future in him, your identity in him, and the forgiveness that you have in him, those things are true beyond measure, and they are permanent about you. When I was interviewing here, you like stories about that? When I was interviewing here, I came down several times. Uh, well, I came down a couple times. Um, but I, I got a chance to meet with the session uh, a few times. I can't remember which one of those meetings this happened in. But I, um, I was meeting with the elders, and uh, one of them said, uh, like asking the question, what would you like to preach on when, if, you, if you're the person who comes to Red Mountain? And I remember that conversation went on for a little while. I don't remember exactly what I said. I probably made something up. I don't know. So, um, but at some point, we were, while we were talking about that, 
he, uh, one of the elders who will go unnamed looked at me and said, I want you to preach on Ezekiel. And I had no idea what I said, but I remember thinking, holy cow, like these people are not playing around down here in Birmingham. Um, and I'm not going to preach on Ezekiel right now, but I want, uh, I want, there's a story in Ezekiel that re- talks about the history of God's dealings with his people. It's a narrative that God offers in chapter 16. And I can't, uh, I can't tell the whole story because, frankly, it's graphic and there are children in here. Um, but the, ba- the, the, the kind of baseline of this story is this, where God talks about who Israel is and how he feels toward her. He says that, um, I came across you and he likened her to a naked baby, vulnerable and abandoned in a field. That was her state. When he found her and he adopted her and brought her into his family and he raised her and, and, and because of his care for her, she flourished and it said she was made beautiful. She was, she was beautiful. Uh, she was so beautiful. And then over time, what happened? She rebelled and it says she gave her beauty away to others who were unfit for it. That's the way the story goes. And then God speaks about how this waywardness of his adopted daughter grieved him and just how terrible that was. But that's not the end of the story. The story ends with incredible hope because there's this, this is what God has to say. He says, I will deal with you as you have done. Discipline. Yet I will remember my covenant with you. Permanent. And I will atone for all that you have done. Did you catch that? God says, I will atone for all that you have done. Why is the forgiveness of our sins? Why is the pardon of our iniquity some, a promise that we can depend on fully and completely? Because God is the one who makes it happen. Because our atonement, our made rightment, <laughs> our justification before God completely depends on what God does for us, not on what we do for ourselves. It can, depends completely on us, on us trusting the Lord for his gift of atonement to us. And so how does he do that? Well, he, he secures our justification before him by sending another baby. By sending another baby, not one who will grow up in waywardness, but this one will grow up in wisdom and stature before men. One who will will love the people. One who loves the people so much, he dies for the people. One who obeys the law perfectly and lives the life that we should have lived and ends up dying the death that we deserve. And that's how God secures our forgiveness before him through Jesus. Second Corinthians tells us that just as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort. And friends, that's what we have here. Words of comfort, of things that are inviolably true about you 
that you have an identity fundamentally placed in God's people and that can't change, that you have a future with God, that is the fundamental truth about who you are, and that your sins are pardoned. That's comfort indeed. He follows up God's word, the voice of comfort with a voice that calls. In verse 3, this is what we hear, is another voice. A voice crying out, it says. The hymn calls it, in the hymn it calls it the voice of the herald. And this herald is placing a call that says, prepare the way of the Lord. Now what is this talking about? Well, it's talking about a king that's coming. It's a call to, uh, to roll out the royal welcome. There's a herald who declares that a king is coming and we need to roll out the, the red carpet and trumpets will be blowing and we do everything we can to prepare for this king that is coming. So we get ready. Now, how do we get ready? Um, well, we get a little help here from another herald who, uh, who picks up this cry. Do these words remind you of anybody? This, this is John the, ba- John the Baptist is the one who picks up this role and he cries to people in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And what does he call the people to? He calls the people to a baptism of repentance. That repentance is one of the ways that we prepare the way of the Lord. And so, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I was looking at this the, uh, as a kid, I remember hearing this verse as a kid that the, the, the mountains will will be made low and the valleys will come up and, uh, and there's a highway and that, um, and I remember thinking, okay, mountains need to erode into valleys and everything will become flat. And that's how I know that Jesus is coming. Um, and like it's literal topographical change is what I thought I was reading, but this is actually poetry. He's talking about changing the moral topography of your hearts. He's talking about changing the, the social landscape of our lives and our neighborhoods and our cities. And, he's, and, and John the Baptist is telling us that this begins with our repentance. That, that as we repent before the Lord, we are actually doing nothing less than overhauling some of the fundamental foundations of our hearts. It's one of the ways that we say no to the idols of our hearts and say yes to Jesus. It's one of the ways that we, that we prepare ourselves for Jesus the Holy, and the, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come and reign in us is simply engaging in repentance. That repentance is one of the ways that we recognize our need for Jesus, but it's also a way of life for us that prepares us for our King to come back. When Martin Luther put 95 theses on the Wittenberg, on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, you know what his first first one was? He said, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And he was telling us that just as our faith began with repentance, so it continues with repentance. And listen, I often wonder about the history of the Israelites and their stubbornness and their unwillingness to hear the prophets when God went to them time and again. And I often think, oh, that they would have just repented. It's the story we have of Jonah where Nineveh repents and God relents, right? It's, a, it's this picture of that God forgives us when we repent before him. 
And I know this, we can't, we, can't be, we can't be arrogant and prideful and stubborn in the middle of repenting for things. This is a call to prepare for the Lord's coming by simply preparing our hearts for his rule. And it occurs to me that repentance is hard work, isn't it? Like it's hard. And it can be scary sometimes. It's a very vulnerable act that we do before the Lord when we pray prayers of repentance. It can be very hard for us to, like, to ask for people to help us with sin and repent to each other. People that we've harmed, it can be hard. But listen, it's good work. This is how we grow away from our sins and toward Jesus. And it occurs to me that in the trouble of waiting... And certainly one of the troubles of preparing is it's always commensurate with what you're waiting and preparing for. Hear me out. Like when you have an awesome guest coming over, you know how we all think this way. When you have like somebody who's a really big deal who's coming over and you feel really grateful that they're coming to your house, to your house, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to work hard, aren't you? You're going to prepare. You're going to make sure everything's clean. And, And this is more than just an image thing. This is just one of the ways you make people feel welcome in your home. But if it's somebody that, you, that, you, that you're not all that excited about coming over, what do you, like it, it might be a little harder to muster up the energy to do the hard work of like preparing and getting ready for them to come, right? The payoff. The payoff is always what we're measuring when we think about these things. Well, that's why it's important that we see this passage closes with the payoff. What's coming? Nothing less than the glory of of the Lord. Listen, the glory of the Lord is what you're waiting for. And the glory of the Lord is what you were made for. It's what Adam and Eve enjoyed when they were enjoying a perfect relationship with God in the garden. They were enjoying sharing the glory of the Lord that they were made for. And it's the glory of the Lord that, 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 that we have longed for every day in our lives. The glory of the Lord tells us that God is with us. The glory of the Lord is what went before the people in the desert and the wilderness. It led them by day and by night. They followed the glory of the Lord. And when Solomon built his temple, it says that a glory cloud came and filled the temple. It's what told the people that they were God's people. And they lived under his favor. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, there's Ezekiel again, there's a vision that the glory of the Lord left the temple and they didn't see it again. And this is why passages about Jesus, when he comes to be with us, when we see Jesus, we are seeing nothing less than the glory of the Lord. John 1.14, this is one of our favorite Advent texts. It says, the word became flesh... And made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. And listen, all of life for God's people hangs on the promise. The the promise of all promises, that just as God sent his glory in Christ's first coming, that he will keep his promise in sending Christ in his glory A second time. That he doesn't come back to us as a baby. But he comes back to us as a king. There's this theologian named Stanley Howard Howard Voss, I think is how you would say his name. He was at Duke for a while. I think he's in Aberdeen right now. But he said this. He said, Advent is patience. He said, Advent is patience is how God has made us a people of promise in a world of impatience. 
when we wait, we don't wait with nothing. We don't wait in vain. But we wait as a people of promise. And that was my grandmother, right? My grandmother was waiting, not with nothing, but she had a ring. And that ring, when she looked at it, it meant to her that she was someone who was waiting with a promise. What sustained her hope while she waited for him? Well, in a word, words. Every day, my grandpa would write a note. And he would mail her a note. She could, it was hard for her, to get, for her to get letters to him, but he could get letters to her. And every day, he put one in the mail to her. And every day, she would go out to the mailbox and she would get the note that he wrote like a week or two weeks prior. Every day, she would read it. And that meant the world to her because it comforted her, right? It comforted her and told her that he was still alive and that he was still thinking of her. This was one of the ways my grandpa wooed the heart of my grandmother from from overseas. And one day, there was no letter in the mail. And she told me that all of her worst fears were realized in that moment until the next day when, when two letters showed up. What sustained my grandmother while she waited for my grandfather to come home? Words. Words of hope. Words of comfort. Words from one lover to another. Words that reminded her that he was thinking of her. Words that reminded her that he was so eager to come to her. As we look at this passage, this is so much more than something that we can pull apart and, and, and diagnose academically. What this is, is a love letter that God wrote to his people, intending to comfort us and our hope and reminding us that he is coming back for us. So wait well, my good friends. The glory of the Lord is coming. Let me pray. Oh, you who came once, we pray that you would come again. But while we wait for you, we pray that you would comfort us. Comfort us in hope. Comfort us in joy. And help us, Lord, to prepare well as we wait for you. We love you and we thank you for loving us first. Thank you for for caring for us in such a way. And thank you for sending us these words that we might be held in hope while we wait for you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.